Hey there, it's Carolyn. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you about a brand new challenge that we have starting over in the Homestead Kitchen membership really soon. This one is all about making your very own herbal oils and culinary oils and cosmetic oils and turning them into salves and balms for your herbal medicine cabinet. If you're interested in joining me for the Herbal Oils and Salves Challenge, then go to homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Again, that's homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Hey, you guys, and welcome to this week's edition of the Pantry Chat Food for Thought. This week, we are tackling a really great subject I'm really excited about. A lot of you guys have talked to me about this and asked me questions. And um, today, we are going to be discussing foraging and really diving into some urban foraging too, not just what we'll be covering them both, but um, foraging in general, but uh, specifically urban foraging. And I'm really excited to have Lisa Rose here. She's the author of the book, Urban Foraging. Um, so she she knows what she's talking about. And this is really exciting. I'm, I'm glad you're here because I love the idea of foraging and I do forage a little bit. We're on a lot of acreage. We're surrounded by a lot of acreage. So we have great things like morel mushrooms up here and, you know, a lot of fun things like that. But as far as like, oh, huckleberries, huckleberries are a big one for our family. But as far as like really starting to incorporate these things in a mainstay way into our diet, it's kind of been a little hard for me to bridge that gap in a lot of ways. So I, I'm just so excited to have you here. But so welcome, first of Thank all. You. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got started into, you know, foraging into that entire world to start with. Well, you know, first and foremost, I'm so excited to hear, you know, that you've you've already taken the first step and that you have a relationship, right, with the huckleberries, with the morels. You know, you have the the luxury right, of having land and, you know, wild space that, that's around you so that you can, not just yourself, but you can take your family out to explore the natural world. And I think that first and foremost, that that's really that starting place is, is having that curiosity and building that relationship with the land. And, you know, when I think people will say, well, how long did this take, you know, how long did it take you to learn this? How long, you know, have you been doing this? And I think, gosh, it's been my my entire existence really on the planet. It's taken different turns, right? As my life has shifted. Um, when I was a kid, my mom, you know, she was, she loved morels. Uh, we had a huge garden, you know, in the city in Flint when I was a, a smaller child and even all the way into, you know, my own adulthood, she always was canning and preserving um, foods from the garden. And then also just, just those memories of walking, you know, to the lake shore. I was lucky enough to live um, by Lake Michigan for a good part of my childhood as well. So being able to walk and, you know, snack on the black raspberries, right? And really those, those moments are embedded into my memory as a human. And a lot of us, believe it or not, even us in the city, we actually have more memories than we perhaps immediately recall. So really... I love inspiring people to kind of dig back and find their more playful side of, of their relationship with nature. Yeah, that's so true. I, I'm thinking back to a point before we even lived out in the country and my mom would take us out blackberry picking and she'd go find the wild space. And this was in Southern California. You yeah. Know, blackberries are not everywhere. It's not like the Pacific Northwest or something right. like that. But she would take us and find these little tucked in places and we would take a picnic lunch and go pick blackberries. And we rarely got more than enough for like a blackberry a snack. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> but the memories were so strongly, you know, the, the associations to those memories are so strong. Um, so it's really neat that you that you go back all the way that far. And I love that you, you know, you really, there's a quality to those memories. And in my mind, people will say, well, gosh, I mean, 
even even myself, you know, I I have I do have a busy modern day lifestyle, right? That that I do try to incorporate to the much as much as I can, bringing the outside in and, and foraging. But by no stretch of the means of you know I you know am I a hundred percent of my diet off the grid and from wild foods? And I I'd say it's more about having that point of awareness and intentionality to bring that into your lifestyle, you know, as opposed to making it the goal of 100% off grid, if you can make it to that, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the other side of it that not all of us have access to sufficient amount of land or resources, natural resources, to sustain us to that degree, um, especially for those of us that are, you know, adjacent to Central Park, let's say, like we can't all turn to Central Park as our green grocer. That would be completely inappropriate, right? And an appropriate use of the the resources that's there for a shared space. So, yeah, it's, it's about the quality of that relationship, tapping into that very human connection that we have with the land, and then and then going from there and learning and and. Uh, helping cultivate then too the wild spaces along the way. So I have a lot of questions for you that I'm excited to dive into. But first, I, I've got to say one of the things that I really like about this book, the urban foraging book that I feel like a lot of foraging books don't have in them is what to do do with these plants when you bring them in i'm looking right here aspen woodland bitters um or you know going into the culinary uses here's a recipe for elderberry syrup in this section let's see if i can hold ah, it the elderberry you know actually getting into recipe yeah i love this one because i've actually made this one myself and that was, now I've lost it. <laughs> I was there for a second, but it was the prickly pear cactus uh, uh, simple syrup. Oh yeah. Great which, for cocktail hour, dry January or not. They're <laughs> <laughs> all sorts of amazing things. And um, so, you know, I love that you put that in there, but I've got to ask, how do you get from those early memories of mom and, uh, you know, picking those little bits of wild greens to writing the book on urban foraging yeah. with all the recipes in it. What, what did that process look like for you? You know, it's really, so this is my fourth book. Um, all, of, all of the pieces I've published to date have been focused exclusively um, on our food system. And, you know, the past three books have been field guides. And this is of these, of the three for foraging, this is more of a hybrid. So including recipes, um, meant to be used adjacent to your regionally appropriate field guide because, I mean, botany in and of itself across time and space, um, plants change, they vary across, you know, different regions. So this is really, um, again, sort of a build on the different chapters I've had in my own life. So I've had my professional career as one trained as an anthropologist. So as, um, you know, from an academic perspective, I've focused on um, food and the origins of agriculture in the Neolithic, how, you know, in the Middle East and the Levant, human communities began to cultivate seeds. We began to practice animal husbandry, you know, what that looked like across time and space as humans migrated to different um, communities, how, you know, agriculture co-evolved um, adjacent here in the, in the new world, North, Af or North America and South, South America. So like that out the gate, that I was just always interested in, in, in the, the origins of agriculture. So, you know, from there, of course, one wonders, what do you do as an anthropologist with a focus in food? Well, you move to Napa, you live in France, you kind of dabble in all the things. And, you know, I've been so lucky to have been surrounded by people that care about the earth, that have a relationship with plants and the land, um, that have a curiosity um, around culture, right? So there's always been this really great intersection in culture share on recipes. So, you know, in urban foraging, the recipes come from my personal experiences with the plants and then also adjacent people. I couldn't, you know, fit all of the stories into like why I chose different recipes, but each one has a story that's personal to me. So, you know, and there's a, there's a person or multiple people and, and generally a scenario that kind of said, 
this is why I should include this because it's 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 a bit of me. So that's mm. something that you know we all have our that personal red thread that goes through our our um, current life and even passed back into the generations. Right when you think of those family recipes, my mother's. Um, you know, gosh, she we would put up about fifty quarts of wild grape juice every fall. And it, you know, I actually do know I have a threshold for purple grape or for for wild grape juice. Actually, as a kid, I maxed it out, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, it's this again. It's this culmination of experiences for me that have been um, actually just just wildly magical and and definitely delicious. I love to eat, and I love to spend time with you know with people and learn from other people of. Um, you know, it's not necessarily even to learn another recipe, but it's it's the um, that exchange and that building of a relationship that comes with with making food um, with others, especially others with a different background and a different you know point of view in the world. So hopefully, um, you know, I'll continue to build on that. And you know, I, I am sort of one that I'm I'm a more of a um, a soup maker than a baker, so I kind of. I sparingly included baking types of recipes in there because anybody that would know me would know I'm full of, if I was to go yeah. into the baker's trade, they'd be like, oh, we know her. She is not the best baker. <laughs> Definitely, right? Just to, to bring in that amalgam of, of life experience. And I mean, and you know this too, you come, you accumulate those moments, right? And those foods really can can just be the highlight of those moments. Well, you're really talking my love language. Now, not a lot of people know this, but when I was back in college, I really dove into studying his uh, prehistoric ethnobotany, which is really a fancy way of saying, um, you know, understanding how different cultures used plants before we had recipe books, right? Yep, yep. 100%. <laughs> before we had written, written recipes. And it was really out of this, this desire to learn how to live within the area that I occupy. Yeah. You yeah. know, if I live in Tennessee, how do I exist there? Yeah. You know, with yeah. the natural surroundings, if I live where I am here in, in Northern Idaho, how do I exist there? And we do that a lot of times we can learn so much by studying the cultures that came before us in those areas who had no choice, you know, trade yeah, routes this was and difficult. <laughs> it's what you ate was what you had outside your door all the time and you needed to make the most of it. So I really like that. I want to jump in to some, um, to some actual questions here to help people get started and to start thinking about how to integrate some of these things into their life, whether they're out, you know, here in North Idaho, surrounded by wild land and 40 acres of property and everything that we have here, or if they're in a city somewhere, or if they're in a suburb somewhere, you know, one thing that we're really big at here at Homesteading Family is encouraging people to start right where they're at. You don't need 40 acres to be able to develop a lot of these skills. And you may never need 40 acres for you and for what your goals are, but you can start right where you're at. And that's so important. So I, I got to just kind of deal with the elephant that's in the room for me here, which is, I think for a lot of people, this idea of urban foraging mm -hmm. The immediate thing that we come up against is they tell us not to gather food by the roadsides. How in an urban setting, how do you avoid the roadsides? Is that really an issue? Can you just talk to this idea of like plant toxicity oh, and sure. uh, runoff and all of these things yeah. It comes with foraging? Yeah, in fact, I love, you know, I don't qualify that as the, as an elephant in the room. In fact, um, you know, you can't talk about urban foraging and not address the, the current state and the historical use of the land in our cities and adjacent to even in our ag communities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, first and foremost, I, you know, I've, you know, I do have a framework for considering and understanding how I would harvest plants. And, and it's, it, there are a couple of pieces to that. Um, first and foremost, absolutely is safety. So, you know, from a botany perspective, 
Um, I, I think botany and plants, I think that should be democratized. So first and foremost, like demystifying some of the basics. Again, urban foraging um, is not a be all end all botany book by any stretch of the means. It should be used adjacent to a more detailed field guide that's re regionally appropriate, but also to understand and to, to make it not so Latin heavy and understand there are the mint family plants. There are some great, you know, the nettles and, you know, the, the varieties of sunflowers, lots of different edible plants that have been used. You mentioned of ethnobotany across time and space now. And so my first rule is if you don't know what it is, don't pick it or put it in your mouth. Definitely don't put it in your mouth. <laughs> like, OK, right. It's like what I would say to my children. <laughs> you know, you know, it, you definitely, you, you know, verify that what the plants are um are edible for use and then the next piece of that understanding um the local environment that you're in so i really love it that how you're saying start with where you're at because that's really 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 important um you know i think that it's a it's being a good steward of the land that you immediately occupy is it's almost a requirement right so getting to know okay so in my neighborhood you know i, I live in grand rapids currently and I co I'm co-located in New York City. So where my office is and, and where my home is in both places, I, I really have done a double click in where I am adjacent to the watershed. What I know has, you know, even as an urban gardener, down to soil tests, what nutrients, what pollutants are in my soil on my, on my you know, plot of land that my house sits on, right? So understanding you know, and really making sure, taking an inventory, so to speak, of the historical use of the land. How was the land used? Is it you know, upstream? Am I downriver from potentially a dairy farm or even, you know, even a, a more um, industrial commercial use of, you know, of, of, of the lands? You know, most of our cities are built on some sort of water access, right? That, there's a reason for that <laughs> industrial use large in part you know it was to take away industrial toxins well that's resulted in a lot of legacy toxins so you know my family's originally from flint i don't know if you've ever followed the flint water story but you can't drink the water <laughs> and I, I don't laugh it's not funny at all in fact it's in my opinion it's it's a real tragedy and, and crime against the citizens of flint that the water has gotten to that point um but as a forager that doesn't mean that the crab apples can't be munched on if they're in a neighborhood or even in a more busy intersection, right? So then it's it's like, okay, I've identified my crab apples. Has it rained? Where is this tree located? What kind of air pollution is it? And, and quite honestly, um, you know, if, if I'm living in a city, I am cohabitating with these plants and trees. And this is more jumps into more of a philosophical, you know, discussion. Um, I'm exposed to those same envirotoxins as the crab apple tree. Now, that doesn't mean I should also take free license and carefree gather, you know, a dock species or even a nettle, um, you know, a plant that might take up lead, right? The toxicity, the heavy, heavy metals contaminants in the soil. I, I, I'd say, you know, I don't need to, I'm not, I'm going to stay away from that. You know, some of those plants, if I feel there's heavy metal contamination. So what I really uh, use to approach this is a, is a framework. It's, it's about having the right questions to ask. And then similar, we'll just say eating sushi while pregnant, right? Or having coffee or a glass of wine while pregnant those decisions then remain at the individual comfort level. Am I comfortable eating the crab apples from the city? Yeah, quite frankly, I am. Somebody else might not be. That's fine. Um, and so again, it's there's there's that framework of knowing your botany, knowing your plants, understanding the land use, and then understanding what happens to the plants in those environments that might make them more or less a problem. Um, in relationship to those potential um, toxins that we find in an urban And will a field guide, a good field guide, give you that information? Or like, how do you find that type of information? Because I know sometimes 
the things that we need to make the decision, the information out there, sometimes there it's it's hard to find. You have to dig really hard. Yeah, yeah, to get. yeah. You're 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 a hundred percent correct. So, so in the the field, I can only speak to the field guides I've written, and in all three of my books, I've included a safety practices and, and considerations, and that covers everything from wastewater management to ag contaminants to um, you know, I'd say easements, railroad tracks, power lines, right of ways, right? All of those have unique um, histories of use that mm -hmm. might make it more or less something to be an area of concern. And then, but but I don't write about like the super fund area uh, areas of concern, right? Like if you live where I where I'm, you know, in the Great Lakes area, we have multiple super fund sites because of, of our industry, you know, we're in the Rust Belt, right? That's just, that's just how it is, right? Gary, Indiana, um, you think, you know, along Chicago's uh, uh, riverfronts and waterways, we have a lot of latent um, legacy chemicals, the PFAS, the PCBs, like, and, and honestly, this is a problem that's bigger than foraging, quite honestly. Right, exactly, <laughs> so, it really is. Right, and so uh, for me, it's like, I don't wanna overwhelm anybody. And I, I, I want to approach it again as a, a place to create a relationship. Um, I could double click and go all the way like super hard, like I said, like the super fun type sites and go there. But that's really um, like a different conversation. It's an important and adjacent conversation. Right. But this is that gateway to say, oh, my gosh, what is around me? What is around my, my family? What's in my water? How do I care how you can't be what you don't see. So, you know, by way of foraging, by way of even peaking interest of saying, what, can you even do that? It's seriously, it starts a conversation, right? And it's, it starts with a what's possible and, and really helps us from that position of asking questions and, and wanting to learn more that it actually, what it does is build more engaged citizens in their natural in the natural world around them you know at the end of the day well it's it's kind of like becoming the informed consumer right absolutely you have to start learning you have to start asking the questions and i've often wondered how you know a lot of field guides of course we have best practices we have to kind of give the the broad spectrum statements when we're educating people about potential concerns mm -hmm. um but you know in in my area i do have a road right out like right out this window mm -hmm. there's the the road that goes through there now it's a road that gets no heavy use from industrial equipment it couldn't mm -hmm. stand up to it it's a very rough road sure um it gets maybe 20 cars on it this time of year when it's mostly iced over and Oh, sure. Yeah. Road. You know, so how, those seasonal roads out here. <laughs> very, very, you know, kind of rough version of a road here out in the country. And, you know, how do I interpret the books that say something like, you know, don't collect plants that are 20 feet off the road um, on my road? Yeah. versus down in town, which does sure. have a lot of trucks yep. moving through all yep. day, every day, versus going down to the big city. And, yep. you know, that's a whole different level of things. We have to kind of take it all with a grain of salt and really start um, interpreting these things ourselves, which is a little scary because it yeah. means we take responsibility back on, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. We don't have anyways. We yeah. just have to pretend that we don't by like hiding behind the general statements sometimes. You bring up a couple of good points. Um, actually, multiple, multiple good points. Um, the, the formula of don't harvest 20 feet off the road. Well, that that's that that's not very descriptive. That it's an arbitrary, it's arbitrary number, right? It's it's, it's all the things you point out, what type of road, what type, you know, I think of our roads here locally in, in Michigan across the seasons, right? We treat some of our roads with salt. We treat some of our roads with sand. We treat some of our roads with fracking water. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, right. we have a history of, you know, along the lakeshore, our blueberry farms um, actually dying back because of those chemical applications. So it's, it's, again, it's a variable statement. It's a variable equation. 
And, you know, the responsibility part of it is that, you know, I go back to your, your, your conversation around ethnobotany and prehistory. There was a, a, a common sense ethos. And I, again, I, I'll use the word framework, like things were learned and then you make decisions with all the information you have and in good faith, right? But you still have to go through those series of like, if this, then that, right? And we don't, we, we've we've not had to do that for about 50 years, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and we've relied on industry to say what's safe. Um, and that, that pendulum has swung back where we're like, mm, Teflon's not safe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not working for us anymore. <laughs> yeah. This is, there's some, there's some, you know, I, I'd, I'd go so far to say there's this blatant lack of trust now in the institutions to keep us safe, um, particularly in the U.S. I think there are other, I think because of, we don't even have to go there. That's a whole other adjacent conversation, right? It's like, uh, you know, I want to make sure that I have the best information available to me and then I can make that that right choice. But then also it does require um, having our institutions be transparent with what's on the road, what's in the water, holding um, you know, accountability to what, what goes into those, those shared resources, right? Like our babies are drinking the water. In Flint, my 94-year-old uh, aunt was drinking, you know, she's on very engaged citizen drinking the water out of her tap until, you know, until she passed. And she just felt like that was her civic duty. And I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> but, you know, she didn't, she felt like it, she had this sentiment that, um, you know, to, to be with everybody else that was being, um, I guess, uh, hoodwinked and, and lie, blatantly lied to of what was in the water, right? We, we need to really have um we have to have clean water that's that's a that's a big deal right right and from there let's let's have that information empower us um to be able to do whatever we can with the resources we have to make sure the future is available for our children um and their children's children um because this really this really is in the bigger picture also um it's a larger piece of our, in, you know, environmental sustainability. So I want to attack for a moment, a fallacy that I hear a lot of the time. And I get a lot of communications from people from all over the United States, all over the world. And um, this is one that just makes me cringe a lot. And I just want to dive into this. And I think you're the perfect person to dive into this a little bit with, but we'll also often hear um, somebody say, well, when the world falls apart, I've got my field guide on my shelf and I'm just going to go to the empty lot next door and forage. <laughs> we, we hear this in context of gardening too. Like, oh, I've got my oh, sure. pack of seeds and I'm just going to grow a garden if the world falls apart and I can't get food at the grocery store. Now, those of you guys who followed us for a long time, you'll know we are very solutions oriented. We don't like poking at the problem too much. Yes, we all need to recognize there's a lot yeah, of yeah, humanity yeah. in the world, but there's a lot of solutions too. Mm -hmm. so to be proactive in taking those. And this is one of those things though, that makes me like, it makes me cringe. And I think from the gardening side, I cringe because I know how many years I have totally screwed up a garden and I'm thinking these people don't even know what they're doing. And they're going to wait till the most stressful moment to pull out and learn. Yeah very advanced skill, but it's right the same with foraging because do you know how long it has taken me? Like in some cases, how many years it has taken me to identify a plant that is in books like, Oh, this yeah. is and it should be all over the place. And I just can't identify. Well, once I do, or somebody helps mm -hmm. me, it's like, Oh, it really is all over the place. I just couldn't identify it for one reason or another. What, like for somebody who's actually ready to get out, I mean, obviously we can kind of laugh at that scenario and go, that's, that's stressing me out actually. <laughs> to make you cringe too. I, like, <laughs> I, I would leave my family's uh, uh, 
safety, well-being to depend on me learning a skill that fast. But um, for people who are actually ready to like wade in and start taking steps right now, which, hey, guys, is the right answer. If you think you want to move towards more foraging, start learning it now. <laughs> like, yeah. don't wait. Um what what would be the first steps that we, you would encourage? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I think we're in a really fantastic moment in human history, at least in the past 60, 70 years, when, you know, the last big movement toward um, this, this a collective desire to have basic knowledge of how to grow your food happened with the Victory Gardens in the 40s, right? So that was the really last, and and you know, there were there were clothing coupons, right, where you used your clothing coupon to get the material you needed to make your family's clothing there. there like there was a huge need to know how to sew, right? right. <laughs> like and yeah. to know how to do these basic things. And we saw that during the pandemic, right? Like I we all have our own pandemic stories. Um Mine started a, a bit earlier, like a month earlier than those people in the U.S. because my son was in um, in South Korea at the time for school. So we went to quarantine when South Korea went into quarantine when I got him home. So I kind of had this like two week lead time. <laughs> so we were like, what do I need to have in place to make sure I can stretch my pantry goods? Hmm. Um, you know, this was February in Michigan. We had, you know, snow at the time, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, okay, well, I know what I have on hand. I have my seeds. I have, I didn't go full on prepper. I did order a box of toilet paper and figured that was good enough. I didn't have to do a whole run like on all the toilet paper, but I did buy a box. <laughs> okay. That became a valuable box of toilet paper. Was, I'll tell you. I, we can, you know, we can joke about it now. I did like, I gave my children like their ration buckets. Like you got like each a roll, like you just didn't get like the, the toilet paper that reappeared in the cabinet, right? Like you each got your own roll. Like you'd have to bring it in with you, bring it out when you're out. That's your month's worth. I didn't know how it was going to go, <laughs> but I knew to your point, like I had, and again, it's not just my 40 years of experience, but it's also my mother's ability that she taught me how to can. She taught me how to cook. She wasn't, she was a very functional cook, right? My stepmother, she grew up in Southern Germany after the war. And I mean, she had her own POV about how, I mean, let's talk about extreme. Like they had nothing in the, in, you know, Southern Germany you know, the, they were all eating out of trash bins. Right. Mm. And, and so I had that skill set. And the fact is, is that we don't have that skill set large in part. So this isn't just like a one-off kind of situation, but I think even when you look at market research for Gen Z, they want to have these very tangible skills. They, they have this desire to know how to be self-sufficient. Now, I mean, that's that's kind of in tandem with also being super connected and some of these other really interesting cultural uh, trends that we're seeing. But it's like the first thing first, if you're interested, get outside, right? Get outside, get to understand where the sun rises and sets, get to understand or at least start to notice the patterns, right? Because to somebody that's not gardened at any point in their life, and I've done a lot of work, um, environmental education work with people in the city, you go out into the forest, one, it's quiet, and that's mm -hmm. dissonant out the gate, right? If you're used to 24-7 traffic and you go out into the, 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 the woods, you don't, you're taught not to go into the woods. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just not a safe place, right? So it's, it's exposing yourself to the outdoors. It's, it's getting, in, you know, getting engaged and starting to learn what those seasons look like. I mean, you as a gardener and as a, a homesteader, um, I, you know, we have a shared understanding of how the sun and its position across the sky will subtly affect the quality of light and then subtly affect the temperature in the soil and then subtly affect the weather patterns, which then will affect when we plant and start our seeds and then harvesting, right? Like we, and that takes a long time to not just know, but to know and to be able to intuit, right? Mm -hmm. So starting to get outside, and that's, that's part of the concern I have um, right now is that 
you know, I love technology. I really do. I think it's fascinating as a tool and as, as something that can bring us together that you and I can sit adjacent, you know, nine, 10 states away, right. 2,300 miles apart, four <laughs> hours time difference and have a chat. Um, but I think that we do need to have that broader skill set and, and knowing how, again, like how to keep your family your family fed, yourself fed. And it's not just having a go kit, right? Like, yeah, you should, or have some degree of mental checklist of what you're going to have to go, you know, have in your go box, but really, you know, start to, and that's why I like to make it fun. Cause once you go doomsday, like that's, that's a whole mental paradigm. That's not very fun to, to live in. Right. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's, not. it's not the place to sit. <laughs> it was all of us in pandemic. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but I think again, and we saw this during pandemic, people wanted to learn sourdough mm -hmm. of starters and how to, how to really, you know, part of it might've been boredom, but I, I do think it's fueled by this um, human need to take care of ourselves. Right. It does transcend just a fad or a trend. Um, the, pre the, the prehistoric ethnobotanical knowledge, that's latent, I believe, in us. And I think that the, the more recent times have sort of kind of woken us up a little bit and said, hey, remember how you're supposed to be as a human. Yeah. Um, because we have a long prehistory of doing this to keep us alive. We have the luxury right now to make it fun, right? Get it embedded into our education programs, encouraging our, our communities. Um, I always say if you're new to gardening and you're interested in gardening and in the city, generally you'll have a couple of, um, you know, community gardens in town. Well, go see if you can, you know, low, low, low risk, right? Like you're not tilling up your own your whole front yard and, you yeah. know, ticking off your neighborhood association. <laughs> Like start right. small, <laughs> start, yeah. make it incremental and foraging the same way. You don't have to flip your entire diet to be, you know, barks and berries and, you know, your acorns. I love having acorns on hand all year. Um, but at the same time, if, if you start bringing the mint in and drying it for mint tea and then blending it maybe with some, some um, either rose petals to maybe make a nice relaxant tea, add in some lemon balm, right? Just to just kind of approach it in a really fun, playful, delicious way, you'll be much more likely to stick with it and garner more interest than like trying to, you know, eat, process the aspen bark and think that's going to really, you know, you, as much as I love my aspen bark as a culinary agent, that's probably not the the gateway. I might maybe recommend mint, nettles, crab apples, the delicious ones, right? So. Right. Well, and it's, it's such a good thing to be, you know, like you say, getting outside, going for walks and just looking at what's around you, you yes. know, and seeing what's right there. Because if that's, if it's right there, you grab a handful of it and you garnish your dinner with it. You mm -hmm. toss it into your salad that you're going to have yeah. you put it in your cup of tea. You can do these things and it just starts at such a low commitment level that it's not um, this heavy pressurized thing that it, it could become if you were oh, looking yeah. at it, like, this is an end of the world skill I have to have right now or else yeah. that just, that's really not the way to start anything. And it's, and it's not, not fun. Anything. No, it's not, no. it won't stick. You don't want to do that. So, you know, and even going back to when my, my kids um, were quite little and I, you know, I love raw milk. I love making cheese from scratch. I love clarifying butter. Uh, I remember 2 a.m., you know, I was like, I, there was so much pressure that I had to make my own just to finish the jars of cream into butter because, oh, my gosh, I got to do all these things perfect. And I'm like, what am I doing? I need to go to sleep. <laughs> like, so I'm sort of postmodern in that way of like looking back and be like, girl, if you're doing it that way, I might recommend just like making some tea and go to bed. <laughs> like, right. I was so and that's something that I tell people all the time is you have my permission to say no. Oh, amen. You know, you don't have to do it all. If the moment comes to it where you do for the survival of your family, you'll figure it out. Yeah, you know, that's a different, that's a different. It yeah. in. 
but you don't have to do it all, but gain the skill in a, in a more relaxed way right now. And if that's as simple as going for a walk and finding what, you know, and pointing it out, looking at it, you know, bring a little bit of a home and nibble on it, but it doesn't yeah. need to become, like you said, you don't need to switch your entire diet over to a forage food right now. Hey, if you do, because you love something so much and you have those resources, great. It's probably healthier for you anyways, but, um, but just, you know, don't, don't pressurize the the thing that much. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get kids involved in the foraging side? I know we've got a lot of kids around here and honestly, um, huckleberries are a great way to oh, get kids yes. involved, <laughs> probably mm. blackberries, yep. raspberries, whatever yep. you have like that. But let's say I'm like, you know, we've, we live, well, I think everybody lives in a dandelion rich environment, right? Um, and getting them to go pick dandelion greens for me is not nearly as easy as uh, picking huckleberries. So yeah. do you have a method for getting them involved at least so that they're learning the skill on a real light level? Yeah, I, I think all the things that you just mentioned in terms of, well, so mine, my children are now, um, how old are they? 17 and, and 20. And, you know, when they, they had no choice, they were sort of brought into the world. Um, you know, I always maintained a garden. Um, you know, I, I long time food advocate. So being engaged with our farmers markets, my kids were, had the luxury of getting to know all of the farmers. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, there are some things about gardening that just aren't fun. And there's things about gathering food that just aren't fun. And there are some things in life that just aren't fun, right? You have chores. <laughs> so I'm sorry, picking the greens. It's just not like, yay, I'm going to go pick greens. I mean, <laughs> I sometimes feel that way. And it, I try to look at it as I get to go harvest fresh greens out of my garden, right? right? Like the get to's versus, oh, I have to. Right. Um, you know, I think integrating those Fortunately, I think a lot of our communities now have have really good green markets and farmers markets. So I think that actually is a really good starting point adjacent to wild foods, right? Because it introduces kids to the broader picture, right? Like many of our children just know fruits and vegetables going into the grocer and seeing the 30 varieties that every, you know, Kroger, Aldi, you know, Meyer has at, at, in the grocery store, right? It's very limited. You get into a farmer's market, you start to see different varieties, and then you start to make a connection. And if your farmer's market offers opportunities to go to the market, you maybe community supported agriculture is a really great way for families with kids to get involved. Um, Multi-generational opportunities are amazing, right? If you have the luxury of having your grandparents also be able to be engaged, it creates this really unique, again, lasting memory, right? So I think that, you know, part of me, I, you know, I talk about with my own grandmother who's 96 this week, um, I learned a lot from her and her approach. They had a dairy farm in the 30s, actually. They had um, an entire dairy fleet um, of trucks, da milk trucks, that were powered by electricity, of, of, of all things, in the <laughs> 30s. I know, they were so progressive. <laughs> um, you know, but she, she'd never, she'd never um, really, she'd always be very direct on, like, these were ways of, of, of surviving, right? Right. But I think it, it's good, though, to have that intergenerational dialogue so we can see, you know, you know, and, and also get handed down some of those tips while our older generation is still living. So, you know, I think do, coming at it from a whole bunch of different angles. In fact, early in my career it was the food nutrition education programming, gardening with kids, community gardening that really was a big part of my life and um, getting kids to taste new foods, getting adults to taste right. new foods, right? Um, <clears throat> tying it into a curriculum for those that homeschool. There's a lot of online resources now that can help bring in the sciences, bring in the literature, bring in um, all, like from a multidisciplinary approach, right? Kids would say to me, you know, if we're tasting new foods, let's say, you know, it was arugula. 
Miss Rose, this is nasty. Okay, so fine. You say it's nasty. That's 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 fine that that's your first descriptor, but can you tell me more why you have that reaction? Hmm. Help me understand what you're tasting. Is it fuzzy? Is it slimy? Is it sp spicy? Maybe what I'm hearing you say, it, it's spicy, not necessarily nasty, but spicy. It's not familiar to you yet. Can you tell me more about that, right? And it's it's almost like the kids' version of wine tasting, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I really... love my taste shoe leather, yeah. my arugula. Well, that's a problem, actually, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be wrong. But, um, but yeah, no, I really like that idea of really bringing out and asking them to explore the flavors of what they're tasting. We had an experience the other day that really stood out to me, and this was a moment when... Um, I had the seven-year-old at the table do something that Josh and I have done over and over again. And we haven't always done it intentionally, but it happened in a way that made me go, wow, we've been doing something right on the food side that I didn't even realize. It was kind of unintentional. But she sat down at the plate at the table. We have very non-picky eaters because we don't allow picky eating it or it just isn't going to happen. Um, Reach. <laughs> but, uh, we all have opinions, but it doesn't mean we get to be picky. But she sat down, she looked at her plate and she was like, we grew those potatoes and those were our green beans. And the, that was the chicken that we raised here. And she went through everything on the plate and she identified how she was involved in the process. Aww. It was, it was this moment where Josh and I have done that over and over again at the table, just trying to circle back around. You know, we picked yeah. those potatoes months ago at this yeah. point. Yeah. And so how valuable to look at that again and say, do you remember that day we were all out there and we were doing all that together and it was hard work then, but here it is, we're still eating this stuff, you know, like that's such a blessing. That's amazing. So being able to bring that experience full circle for the kids too, of like, this is the cobbler that came from those blackberries that we picked. And yeah, do oh, yeah. Thorns and all the everything that we yep. had to reach through. Yeah. And just making that a positive memory and framing it for the kids, how how valuable that really is. Now, I want to pivot just a little bit. I, I gotta first say, yeah, nice gotta... job. <laughs> well Thank done. You. And so then we'll pay dividends. It'll Sometimes we have these successes that we don't, we're like, oh, that was good. Like, let's keep doing that. <laughs> Hang on to that one. <laughs> um, so with inflation, the way it is at the grocery store, and it is high, this is hard for a lot of families stuff. to eat. We also have some of these issues with inflation. I don't know. If you live in a city, you may not experience this because you have a lot stronger supply lines coming mm. in. But here in our little town, we have two grocery stores and they're kind of mainstream mm. grocery stores. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the main grocery stores announced early this last winter that they were no longer going to be bringing in the more delicate produce, fresh mm. produce for the winter because they couldn't get a good enough quality. It was rotting too fast and yeah. people weren't able to afford it. So they yeah. were going down to things like root vegetables, cabbages, stuff that could sit on their shelf. Now this is, this is a grocery store that usually has a beautiful selection of different types of organic kale and sure. you know, like you've sure. got a really nice selection and it really um, shut down what the yeah. selection was that was available, especially over winter when there's not a lot of ground available. But I just want to tie that around. How can foraging save money on groceries in a practical way? You know, and like you've said, it might not be that you're just like, I'm just going to forage all my food next month. Right. That's probably not practical for most people. Yep. But there are some ways that it can actually help. You know, I think... Uh, you uh, again, the the current reality of our food system, um, you know, the inflation is 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 significant. You know, domestic you know, conventional eggs now are six fifty a dozen in our in our local grocer, right? And we're not even talking free range pastured, 
happy chickens, right? So there's that. Um, you know, and I think that the travesty that happens when you are even in a rural environment, so you have food deserts in the city, but we also have rural food deserts, mm -hmm. right? The irony that, that, that right. you know, that it's very dissonant to think about that, but, you know, not having that ability to have that produce brought in leaves a big gap. So I think that not even just a foraging um, paradigm, but rethinking how do we create a resilient community where we have the resources for that long winter season, right? So it comes in multiple uh, different, from multiple different angles. How do we think about food preservation? How do we, you know, bring forward? How do we partner? Because back in the day, this was not all done at the family unit level solely. You had generational engagement. You had multiple families living nearby, right? The load was shared. We don't have that right now. So the burden primarily falls back to one caregiver generally within a household to think about seasonal um, food prep. So that's so there's an opportunity to think, OK, how do we fill that gap and pool our resources to do some pr food preservation? How do we leverage, um, you know, the different um, extra surplus? So gleaning. We have more, we have a food distribution problem in the United States. We don't have a food quantity problem. Right. If we're going to talk about agriculture, right? So, so how do we start to think a little differently and say, okay, how do we rebuild those local networks to say, I have extra this, 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 and it's going to look different for every community, right? In the city, that might be that might be urban gardeners sharing produce. It might be working with the food pantries. It, it might be a myriad of networks, right? And you might not have that diversity of networks within a rural infrastructure, at least in in the number of them. But you also have, I think, a um, an ability to tap into those more connected networks. I think I you know I, I know that that isolation and loneliness in a rural environment is real. But also it's a little different than in the city where there's also isolation. It's a really, right. you know, you know what I mean? It's like, so there's, there's an opportunity to come together and rebuild those communal infrastructures that help us leverage the surplus, help us rebuild the information networks, right? Because you're not going to be able to just go forage out the gate and start picking things and expect it to be amazing on your plate if you've never cooked, gardened, or gone outside. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a steep learning curve, right? So how how can we start to, you know, those of us with those broader networks, like you yourself, you have a large um, community base, right, that you can help pull together, be a convener, say, how, how can we, you know, solve this collectively so we have a better likelihood of success and a higher rate of resiliency, right? Like, I really think that um foraging what you do learn is the interconnectivity mm -hmm. and and this the interreliance of systems you you start to see how that yeah. plays out right and so yep. using that um that approach for our communities i think will also help us build resiliency um as we face you know this this inflation issues is not going to go away anytime soon yeah right, right. it's it's just like we have fault, you know, we, this isn't an economics conversation at all, but, you know, when you look at subsidies and, and all of the true cost of, of growing our food and distributing our food, you brought up, you know, transport of fruits and vegetables from Salinas Valley, you know, to Idaho, that's, you know, to keep your romaine lettuce happy, right. <laughs> a lot of inputs, it right? is that's not cheap, that's like, that lettuce gets a first-class ticket to Idaho. <laughs> right? Climate controlled. Right, exactly. Um, and that's not, that's not, um, we haven't paid that price at the, at the supermarket. And just now we're starting to see those systems, right? So hopefully we can take a, a page out of the, the natural world's playbook and, and look at those systems of interdependency and resource sharing and, to hedge against, um, gosh, what so many people are facing right now. It's really, it's, it's, people are foregoing medical care. They're foregoing, you know, they're, they're starting to miss mortgage payments. You know, it's, it's, 
layoffs continue just to roll through like this. And um, we have enough. We just have to rethink how we're um, sharing resources and, and, and building community. Yeah. And that takes getting a little intentional about it and actually looking at the problem and dealing with it. So we, I'm going to throw questions at you real fast. We're going to do sure. speed round. Okay. okay speed round. This is a uh, foraging speed round. I have not given Lisa any heads up on these questions, but, so <laughs> but okay. Uh, 30 seconds or less. What's the fastest way to clean greens that you have foraged that come in filthy? Uh, first, I wouldn't pick them filthy. If they come in filthy, I might raise my eyebrow. So it depends on the mud on them, but I would quickly rinse them off in a blast of cold water with my sprayer, reevaluate and go from there. Next question. Good. How to destem elderberries the fast way? Oh, destemming elderberries the fast way. Bring them in. I usually use a large sheet and I'll just kind of loosely shake the umbels on a sheet and then pick out the umbels and bring it together and go from there. Cool. What is your most favorite forage food that you're eating right now? I'm using my acorn flour as a very delectable cuisine as, as breads and, and porridge and, and I'll put homemade um, maple syrup on top. And that's kind of my indulgence. Some of, some of my favorite cookies ever were mm -hmm. acorn flour cookies. They are so good. They are good. And okay, treat. what was your biggest disaster or the one that comes to mind the first when it comes to foraged food and experimenting in the kitchen? My favorite foraged food slash disaster. It wasn't a disaster, but it was like the end of June, my first year in my apartment in college. And I made a foraged mulberry pie and did not include enough cornstarch. But I overlooked all of that because it was amazing because I made it myself. <laughs> to become ice cream topping instead. <laughs> I, you know, I just kind of, yeah, exactly. A little, a little a la mode in a dish and it was fine. <laughs> are there any laws against foraging? Absolutely. There are legal laws in terms of using um, communal land or uh, municipal all the way to federal lands and, and removing plants, animals, uh, natural materials. So check your laws. Have on permission. private property, are there any plants that are legally protected? You have to check with your local state and uh, local resources to see what's on your threatened or protected list. Okay, could be then. Good. And best tools to take with you when you go foraging? Always take your pruners, a little hori hori if you're digging roots, um, good shoes, good gloves, a sun hat, and some butter. All right. I love it. Okay. Thank did I you make it in 30 much. seconds? I, I think you did an awesome thing. That was good. I didn't actually have a timer. So. Oh, shoot. Right. <laughs> Next time I'll get my act together. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great discussion. I think there's so much to talk about here. We could probably, I, I think you and I could uh, enjoy a, uh, you know, foraged pie yeah, a nice long conversation about food security and some of the mm. things that mm. uh, we would love to see worked out a little bit better here. But um, where can people get a hold of you if they want to hear more of what you have to say? Well, I certainly appreciate connecting with you and I want to continue the dialogue. I love the intentionality, the thoughtfulness and the depth of consideration that even our conversation has had. So it's it's lovely to be connected with you and our community of food. Um, beyond this forum, Google Lisa M. Rose foraging. The Googles will put, you, put me up to the top. Web uh, books are all at places that uh, all good books are found. I love uh, our, our brick and mortar shops. Those are always, always my favorite. Um, and I hope to hear from folks if they have their own stories, shoot me an email and uh, happy to respond and entertain the conversation. Definitely. That sounds like a lot of fun. Check out her books. I am going to go get myself some of the uh, field guides too, because Yay! I've not seen any of your field guides. So I'm really excited. So thank you guys for hanging out with us for this great conversation. Very thought provoking. And make sure you leave us comments. If you're watching this on YouTube or on a video, plat video platform, if not, if you're on a podcast, feel free to, uh, you know, connect with Lisa 
or send an email over to Homesteading Family and, uh, you know, let us know what, what you're thinking about. And if this prompted any thoughts for you or any directions for you that you haven't thought of going yet, because it's a good conversation to be having. So thank you. And a fantastic one to continue. Absolutely. We'll see you soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pantry Chat, Food for Thought. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. To view the show notes and any other resources mentioned on this episode, you can learn more at homesteadingfamily.com slash podcast. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.